Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Welcome to another episode of Tej Talks, everyone. Uh, this was recorded on the 18th of June, so still in lockdown, so some things might be out of date. If you haven't left a review, please do. People are asking me, oh, I didn't know you could leave reviews. Yep, I say every episode, would you believe it? Um, you can go on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave it there, or on the Facebook page. Uh, just a reminder, uh, I have a mailing list, uh, tej-talks.com. I send a mailer out every week, so go, go and join that if you like my stuff. Uh, in addition to that, I also have a uh, book that's coming out very, very soon. If you want to be on the waiting list for the book to get the, be the first people to receive the option to buy it, uh, look in the show notes of this podcast and you will find the link to go join up. I'm also giving away a free ebook on how to scale quickly. So my four top tips on how to scale quickly and that link will also be in the description. Today we talked to Lucy and Jules from DBV Property, how they built a portfolio worth 2.2 million in a couple of years but more importantly they did it while both working full-time five days a week you know corporate normal jobs and I really want this podcast to show you how it is possible to do both but it's tricky and it's tough but it most definitely is possible so I hope it inspires you that everything can be done with the right kind of balance and the right kind of systems and you will make mistakes but as long as you learn from them it is our gravy. Lucy and Julian welcome to the Ted Talks podcast. Thanks very much, Tej, for having us. Hi, Tej. No, that's no problem at all. I mean, Lucy, I know you're a recruiter, um, and Julian, I know you work <laughs> in AML and compliance, but this is quite an interesting podcast because where did I meet you, Lucy? Was it at PPN Knightsbridge a few months ago? Correct. Nice plug. Yes, yeah, it nice was plug, PPN yeah, Knightsbridge. Casual plug. <laughs> I say a few months ago. I mean, it could have been two years ago. I don't even know what, what the time is or day or no, anything is right no. now. No, no. Yeah. Um, and so for reference, we're recording this on the 18th of June, which is still in, well, it's official lockdown, but who knows what's actually happening out there. Just so when people hear this, they know what's going on. So, you know what? I think this is going to be an interesting show because a lot of people ask me, how do you balance, you know, a job, a career and investing in property? And you've grown pretty quickly looking at these figures I have in front of me. And so I, I kind of, I really want people to like learn from you how to balance the both and of course other things but I think that would be a key takeaway for people today so before we get into like what you're doing now and how you do things and in the future how did you both first get into property okay good question um so we we have always enjoyed our jobs but I think at the back of our heads there's always been that kind of niggling feeling that there must be more to life than sitting in a desk and earning money for other people um, as you rightly said, my background's in recruitment and working in startups, advising on the talent side, so work quite long hours, quite fast paced, and I knew that wasn't sustainable forever. I knew I wanted some time back and, and some kind of freedom, um, and the same with Jules. Um, we had a bit of capital, which I got from um, uh, kind of remortgaging my flat, and we were thinking about just buying one property. However, we came across um, a course um, like many of the listeners do, and, and we thought we'd go along and, and see what kind of property investing is all about um, from a building a portfolio and leveraging off other people's time and money. Hmm. And, you know, do you think that course changed things for you? I guess what I'm saying is, was it worth it? I, I think it was worth it. Um, the knowledge we built up in, 
the network we produced from it has really helped. I think property is um, very given industry. Um, it's not as it's competitive, but I, I think people are there to look out for each other as well, which is great. Um, and I think that's really helped on the course as well as the knowledge. In a way, spending money on a course, I think, has held us accountable to actually doing something with that knowledge. I think there is a lot of free content out there. As Jules said, people are really giving, but actually having signed up and paying money, which in the scheme of things at the time is, is a lot of money. But I think as time goes on, you only have to do a couple of deals to have replaced that. And the networks and the learnings that we've built, we've, we've made some best friends from those courses, um, has kind of kept us in good stead. So, so yeah, I think on average, it, it, on balance, it definitely for us, it's, it's obviously a personal decision. Okay, so you went to this course, and how long ago was this? We started in 2016. At the end of, but we didn't really the do the of, courses yeah. until um, the middle of the next year. So that was, okay. yeah, middle to late of 2017. And it finished around 2018. Okay. And when you, so was it a course that was over time or was it like a one-off? It was uh, a series of different courses. You sign up to what package you want. And then um, we just opted in for um, certain specialist course around strategies we were interested in. So then once you did these courses, how did you then know like what to start off in? Because if you've had a bunch of strategies, you're kind of, you think you're interested in this, you think you're interested in this. How did you know, right, this is what we're going to do? Well, initially, we um, early 2017, we started to look in leads. Um, and I, I don't, well, this was early stages in the course. I think we were a little bit ambitious. We, we even looked at a church that could be converted into flats potentially and other shiny pennies. And then I think once we learned a bit more from the courses, we got a bit more back to basics. Yeah. Um, we moved away from leads because unfortunately the numbers didn't work. Um, and then we looked, started to look elsewhere. Yeah. So I think really we were looking, we kind of doing the courses taught us to start with your strategy. And for us, it was really about building cash flow. So predominantly, although buy to lets were good, we really knew kind of ultimately wanted to do HMOs. And as Jules said, we spent a lot of time doing due diligence on different areas and, and going off. But yeah, for us, it was really starting with, with the, the cash, the cash flow and our strategy and then going, nailing that down to area and then obviously taking it from there. Okay. And you're both based in London, but you invest in three areas outside of London. <laughs> one of them is so we invest yes across three areas one of them is London and we include the flat that I um, bought a few years ago as part of that portfolio so that's in North London um, we also invest now in Essex and we started a few years ago investing in in um, South Yorkshire so okay. yeah <laughs> and did you so you had the London flat already and then your first or your first few HMOs were they outside of London yeah, so our first um, investment property wasn't um, an HMO. It was actually just by chance. I was at a party of my mum's and chatting to a lady saying, oh, we're going up, we're going up early tomorrow. We're going up to South Yorkshire. And she's, and it happened to be where her brother lived. And she said, oh, he's selling two properties. Why don't I put you in touch? Hmm. And we actually ended up buying them both. So, um, yeah, so direct to vendor, first deals, which was great. And then from there, we, we then kind of, they were almost accidental buy to lets, but actually great. And they've been really good in our portfolio. But from then on, we then it went into HMOs. Um, Oh, that's so interesting because most people's first deal is estate agents, 50 viewings later, oh, getting sick of this, calls and calls. But yours was a chance or a meant to be meeting at a party where you were just talking normally. I mean, you probably didn't have the intention of, you know, like getting a deal out of it. It's just normal chat. And I think that shows that's a lesson for people is tell everyone what you do. Like, especially in a scenario like that, like what are the chances you'll be at a party in London and someone in South Yorkshire has two properties? And you buy them like it's just 
it only happens because you spoke about it. You know, you you could have sat in the corner and just ate the nachos and, and like not. Yeah. And, and not we did that as well. <laughs> I mean, that's the we, best part of the world. But. We, we, we have had other instances like that. We were actually on a bus and we were completely lost and I got chatting to the guy next to me. And again, his parents were selling a property in, in the same area. Um, and so we went to see it. It was a deal we ended up sourcing onto another investor. So, yeah, I totally agree. That's definitely one of our learnings is, is chat to everyone. You, we've had news agents offer us their, their portfolio. You know, it is, it is definitely a people game and, and trying to speak to as many people. Um, so, so, yeah. Yeah, 100%. And I think that proves it, right? That case study and the others you have should tell the listeners, tell everyone what you do, no matter who they are, because you... You know, you don't know just because someone looks a certain way or drives a certain car, they, they like a lot of people are interested in property. So they can probably help you in some like shape or form. Right. So your first HMO, um, how did you like how did you know a HMO was going to work in that area? I get asked this a lot and I don't do HMO. So I, I just sort of give a generic answer. But in your opinion, what kind of due diligence did you do that meant, you know what, HMO is going to work here. We're confident. Um, so the first HMO we did, it did did take a while to find. Um, we did do a lot of due diligence, as Lucy mentioned, but the um, the room sizes are quite quite high in that area, which is good, obviously. Um, and we eventually found this property very near the, the town centre, and we knew instantly um, it worked. There was about five other couples there at the same time, so a lot of competition. And quite funny, when we left the property, um, Lucy said, well, this is actually on for quite low to the agent, which I was a bit open mouthed by, but, <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. I, th- I think you were asking more from a, like, what factors do we consider when we like analyze whether the area is right for HMOs from that perspective, um, where we were, which is actually Doncaster is, um, was due to the industry links. So, um, it has distribution warehouses for ASOS, Tesco, um, a- uh, Amazon. Um, it's, uh, got big blue collar working um it has quite good um room rates in terms of uh what you'll get in terms of rent and um the local authority there was no article for which there was in other areas that we looked at so we thought it might be easier in terms of a barrier to entry and it's the main line to london as well it only takes about an hour and 40 so it's a good location and that was key for us as well we weren't necessarily going to be driving all the time we used the time on the train to be analyzing deals and things like that and getting early morning trains um, meant that we could spend a full day in the investment area doing back-to-back viewings and then get home and crunch the numbers on the way home, um, as we said. So, um, so yeah, those are the kind of key factors for us. Um, as Jules rightly says, the first um, HMO that we looked at, I did that is probably my worst quote ever in property saying to the, saying to the agent i think you've undervalued this but in my defense there was a double story workshop in the garden that they hadn't factored in as part of the um so it was part of the the land and part of the plot um but they hadn't factored in so the cost i thought was was low and actually it meant even though it was a five bed we could classify it as a six bed really in terms of the income from the workshop so we rented that out to a local builder in terms of storage so mm. probably shouldn't have said that but we did get it in my defense <laughs> so and uh yeah it was it was it's turned out to be a, a good deal for us yeah and how many viewings did you do before finding that one hmo oh. that you got accepted well, what do you reckon for example on there was one day we did uh 22 viewings in one day we hired a car and it was just <laughs> manic and then we trying to analyze all the deals at the end and we were like was that house seven or house ten it's quite hard to remember so i think as we went on we kind of learned 
to um, improve our process. To be too. slightly more structured and, and kind of, yeah, I think that's the other thing as well. We, we were flitted a bit between buy-to-lets and HMOs. And with the buy-to-let side of things, we just found it uber competitive. And for our, for our what we wanted out of a deal, we were so, we were looking for perfection really. Um, but yeah, I think once we knew what we wanted, we we were a bit luckier. And, and it, it was hard, as Jules says, the room sizes in Doncaster, um, the, although the national average is 6.25, the minimum requirement is 6.52 meters squared. In Doncaster, it's 10 meters squared. So how many houses come up, which fit that criteria in the right location for the right, you know, all of the, you know, so yeah, it, it was, it was a bit of a challenge, but then I think it's like buses really once, once you find one, they all kind of seem to come along and line up and then you don't seem to be able to find the cash to yeah, fund them. We, so. uh, we actually bought two on the same road within a six week period. <laughs> um, so yeah, kind of proves the point really. Yeah. I like it. And, and what, what, if you remember, what were the figures like on that first deal? Um, so we bought it for 82 and a half thousand. So it was end of terrace. Um, and as I think Lucy mentioned, I don't really think they factored in the workshop in the garden. Um, the refurb, I think in hindsight, was a little bit too high, but it was fine. It was around about 40,000 as well. Um, and we, we bought that in cash and then refinanced about five to six months later. Um, so the done-up value was around 130. So, which was slightly lower than we wanted. Um, as Jules said, we paid a bit too much on refurb, but it was our first HMO. We learned a hell of a lot on it and um, have the war, like the war wounds to yeah. prove going through it all. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, for our first deal, we were pleased with it on on the whole. And would you recommend that people kind of do what you did, which is have the buy to lets first, then go into HMOs? Or do a lot of people who just say, nah, 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 I want a HMO first. Would you advise that given what you've learned from the first one? Uh, I, I find it depends on how big the buy-to-let is, but in some ways, if you're doing quite a big refurb on the buy-to-let as you would on the HMO, in, I wouldn't put them off going straight into a HMO, but it is hard to manage it, um, even though we had a managing agent, which I'm sure we'll come on to. I, yeah, I would just say with HMOs, it actually comes down to management rather than refurb. You, you can know the regs and everything on, on, on HMOs. It's the key thing with HMOs is getting a key manager. So yes, as long as you know the, the regs and as long as you're you're fine with working with builders and you've got a good reliable team who've who've done it before and can kind of almost guide you and teach you, I don't think I'd, I'm, I would have jumped straight into an HMO as well, to be honest. Hmm, okay. And then, you know, this strategy, of course it brings cash flow and of course it, there's issues with management, which we'll kind of get to, which I think is probably the main um con of doing HMOs you've got pros and cons I think that is probably the main one that I hear about like is it do you think it's a strategy that you could do only so you could do you think you could only do HMOs or do you think people should diversify in some shape or form I think 100% diversify. I think the market is changing and it's definitely changed a lot since we started investing. Um, we actually changed our investment area part of the reason because we wanted to diversify a little bit in terms of strategy. But I think it's a great you know, strategy to have in your toolbox, but actually, ultimately, you should have a diverse portfolio and that be across flats, buy-to-lets commercial conversions whatever it be um whatever fits with your goals but um but certainly i think doing just just hmos is, is not really sustainable mm -hmm. so personally. take me i agree with you and i think even if you i think there's one strategy you could do only of which is buy to lets because it's a foundational but even then i think you need diversity even in tenant type or area i think it just it future proofs your business right so take me from you know that first hmo you learn all these lessons, it's big refurb, you pull some money out of it. 
how did you then grow from there to where we are now, which is, I believe, portfolio of 2.2 million? How, how like, what was the kind of growth there? And, and then did you carry on buying HMOs? So, yeah, we have continued to buy HMOs, even though I said, um, but we've, we've actually realised um, we had a number of problems, as Jules hinted, with our, our managing agents. I mean, the, the list is really endless. We had, we, we've always kept our own cleaning team and our own maintenance guy um, to be the eyes and ears, um, probably because we were a bit sceptical about the management team. And um, we had instances where we had sent the maintenance guys just to go and fix a few things before we had tenants move in. And they arrived at the property and the tenants had already moved in and been there a week and we'd never got the money for. So you can imagine the kind of how ethically sound those managing agents were. We had repeated things like that, Section Eights that were, you know, served wrongly, AST yeah, that weren't set were up. So you know, there delayed. was lots of there was lots of you know issues that we had, and, and ultimately, we always knew. We wanted to invest fairly close to London. Um, Yorkshire was great for us learning the ropes and kind of cutting our teeth, but investing closer to home. So on the back of all those issues, we brought our management in-house in Yorkshire and we have a local landlady who manages those, which is great. She understands HMOs and understands what's involved, but she gives a personal touch. And at the beginning of last year, we decided we, want to, we wanted to um, invest for capital growth as well. So we now invest in Essex and that was off the back of doing due diligence around like we said all those factors having good access to London so commutable links good industry good local authority contacts to work with um, and I, we managed to build up a relationship and a partnership with the local NHS trust there and so we rent directly to them um, to house their international nurses um, so it is, although it's still HMOs, we now invest not just purely for cash flow and we do leave more money in our deals, but we, we hope at the end of the day, given the proximity to London, there will be some element of capital growth in our deals. Interesting. And so with, with this kind of shift, you know, do you think it's natural that everyone who invests far from home is going to get pissed off at something or someone and because it's far away, they're just going to say, I need to be closer or do you think, you know, do you think someone could have a hundred HMOs, you know, two hundred miles from their home? Yeah, because I think some investors have properties all around the country, and they seem to cope and manage it. So I don't think that's a major issue. But I think, as Lucy said, it was difficult to leave South Yorkshire, and we had some quite good deals, but we just thought we need to go closer to home. So we sourced them on through a local agent, um, and yeah, now we, we feel a lot more comfortable having our most recent properties within an hour of London. Um, we could have continued up north, but I think we've made the right decision. It just comes down to everyone's individual goals. And for us, we always knew that we wanted to to invest closer to, to London, should we be able to kind of financially and, and everything else. So, um, yes, every you, people can build to a portfolio of 200 um, HMOs far from home. But and, and as long as they've got the infrastructure and right management and everything else, um, then then it's definitely doable. But for us. And our longer term plans, we just knew that it was time to make the, the change. So, you know, obviously going from South Yorkshire to London, the, the prices are stark, a huge contrast. Um, and I guess the yields with that are then are so compressed compared to like South Yorkshire or, or anywhere sort of in the, the north. How have you then been able to, well, how have you been able to go from buying houses at say 82 grand to what, 300, 280, yeah, yeah, 280 grand. What's, have you got private investors? Is it your own savings? And could you both obviously work? How, how has it happened? With that, actually, um, even though the prices are actually triple than South Yorkshire, <laughs> technically the money we put in at the start is less because we've been able to get 
um, mortgages straight away. We mainly look at townhouses um, and then quite small refurbs. Um, and with the investors that I'm sure we'll touch on more later on, um, we agree at least a two-year minimum period. Um, so there is more money left in, but we don't actually need as much money as finding cash in South Yorkshire. Interesting. Okay. And how did these investors find you? How did you find them? So Mix, really, I have to be totally honest with you. We we were in the fortunate position of having a pot of capital really to start. And so we got a bit lazy in terms of finding investors. Um, and that's definitely a learning for us. We really should have started earlier in terms of sowing seeds and talking about what we do. Um, but I think it was also a nervous thing. Um, we were new to property and we obviously wanted to build up credibility. So the first one we bought for our own cash and then we could say to family members and friends this is what we do now and then we have a case study to prove yeah prove certainly that. but with with investors now we they tend to be predominantly friends family um friends of friends maybe that we've you know talked about in passing we when they find out what we offer in terms of returns they think god that seems too good to be true and then we talk about what's involved we have turned away investors when it just doesn't seem like a good fit um when they're not willing to make that long-term investment and um we also do um still invest for most of our deals by the last couple a, a bit of our own equity so we would put in kind of 30 to 40k into a deal and so we've got skin in the game and that makes it kind of a credible proposition to say look we're we've kind of sharing the risk as it were and when we do refinance that money left in would be ours So I'm actually working on property full time. It's kind of I was meant to start a new role in um, earlier this year when we got back from our honeymoon and it was delayed because of COVID. So I have been taking the last few months to focus on property. And I don't know if I will go back to what I was doing, um, although maybe on an advisory, I don't know, perspective, but for a freelance perspective. Um, but for now, we just want to build up our kind of cash flow pot and um, maybe next year we will both pull ourselves out and work on property full time. Um, you still enjoy what you do. Yeah, I, I'm a contractor, so I can kind of go in and out of um, different projects. It makes it a lot easier. But I'm, I'm happy to continue to work for now. But yeah, obviously, the long term goal is to both be full time in property. And when you're a contractor, we know the money is so much better than being permanent. So if, 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 I, if I could carry on contracting, I, uh, I would. It was just like, it was the best thing ever, just contracting. Um, so, you know, you have both been working full time, yet you've grown so quickly and in areas that are not necessarily <laughs> on your doorstep and yeah. in different areas. Yeah. How, and you both work five days a week? Well, I did. Yeah, yeah, we both did. Yeah, so how, you know, obviously before COVID, how did you both work five days a week, do viewings far away, manage refurbs, manage tenant? Like, how did you do everything? <laughs> um, it was a bit of a struggle, uh, where it still is occasionally. Um, taking calls when I should be in meetings at my work, I probably shouldn't say that on here. Um, <laughs> but I think, as Lucy said, the key thing is to just to get your, your teams in place, because some of the work we used to do, we really shouldn't have been doing. Um, but just to have those local people has just been a waste of our minds and a lot, lot more helpful going forward. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's had its challenges, definitely. Yeah. Even though we technically self-manage Essex, we have a lo we have a, a, a couple who do our maintenance and our, and our kind of day-to-day -day management. They are pretty self-sufficient in what they do. I would only go up to have meetings with the NHS or to maybe meet some new nurses who are arriving. So actually, from a time perspective, it's been it's been relatively easy. And that was another reason it just seemed like such a ideal thing to be doing because of 
the time requirements. Mm. And obviously there's two of you. So the workload as opposed to say one person trying to do the same thing is hopefully a bit easier. Um, but like how, so when you were growing and mainly when you were investing further from home, did you ever feel overwhelmed? Did you ever think, oh my God, we just cannot do this? Yeah, massively. And yeah. there were times when I was, Briefly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, it's, it's, I guess, one of the ways that we've, we learned fairly early on, we wanted to operate, we should, we should operate as a business as early on. So that was really, uh, <laughs> treating the two seconds, sorry. Sorry, a weird, strange alarm went off in our house. Um, no, I think as Lucy said, yeah, just, just kind of getting the right software in place and like, book, if that's bookkeeping and just analyzing deals, loads of things, just operating like a business from the start has made things a lot easier. But um, working as a couple is definitely got its challenges. Um, we have very different personality styles. Lucy probably thinks I'm a bit more laid back, but she's um, very much the lion in the relationship, <laughs> uh, to say the least. Um, but I think, yeah, it does work well. It's just the key thing is to know our roles and responsibilities. And then we're still learning week by week, but I think we're getting there. And how is it for both of you? Because, you know, working with someone else who's a business partner can be bloody irritating as it is, but it can also be a great help. How is it working with your partner in the business as well? Yeah, as I mentioned, it is a challenge. There is sometimes when it's midnight, 1am, and we're still talking about the latest refurb or the nightmare tenants we occasionally have. It's very hard to switch off. We we did a thing where I think it's after 9 or 10pm, which is not allowed to, allowed to mention the P word, i.e. the property word, because just we never sleep. I'm a bad sleeper as it is. Um, it's also about recognition as well. I think that's taken a time. We Jules invented the DBV award, which is our company, De Beauvoir Properties. So we have the employee of the month and we have the employee of the year. There's and no so, physical trophy. But there's no here. physical trophy yet, but it's it's nice because then we'll have a dinner um, you know, once a month and we'll talk about the successes of the month and like, almost like a mutual appreciation for thanks for doing that and thanks for doing that and it's been a struggle or it's been great and we should we should be like celebrating the small wins as well um so so yeah i think it, it's about having that balance i love that i think i need ted talks awards it's going to be me every month employee of the month <laughs> yeah. me every year employee of the year that'll be that'll be a fun uh, that'll be a fun dinner with myself um so you know when it comes to like you said about splitting the roles and yes. this is important for anyone in any you know partnership how did you decide how to split the roles? Was it just, I like this, I'll do this? Or was it like, just sit down and go through everything and split it? Well, I would say I'm, I'm quite analytical. So I would I always do kind of the bookkeeping. Um, we both obviously look at deals, but the, the number side I'm looking on, especially, and then Lucy's kind of more the relationship. Yeah, I'm always called the front of house. So mm -hmm. I'm the one kind of dealing with the, I mean, for example, with the with the NHS, that just happened about you know, picking up the phone and, and, and calling around different businesses and, and kind of following a bit of a lead, which I guess, again, goes back to my background of recruitment and business development. So, yeah, playing to your strengths and knowing what's what. Sometimes there's a little bit of crossover, but, but generally Jules does kind of back office finance and I'm front, front of house. <laughs> OK, nice. Um, what's the worst piece of advice you've been given? I, I think I, 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 think, I, wouldn't you know, really say, I wouldn't really say it's advice, but I think it's kind of not to follow the crowds. A lot of people just kind of all go to the same area because you see it on social media, etc. It's very much kind of creating your own niche, like Lucy's done with Essex. Um, 
yeah I'd say that yeah I think also you know looking at deals on paper is different from the reality of actually so an investment area can look amazing on paper in terms of numbers but actually take into consider it go and talk to people on the ground go and yeah. talk to them go and talk to your potential tenants find out what they want you know service that demand rather than creating beautiful rooms unfortunately you do see that you see on spare room beautiful rooms that just don't rent because there isn't just that demand i don't think that was a back of the piece of advice generally but you know there's more to, to the story than just the figures sometimes yeah definitely if you um if you see these deals with amazing ROIs, you kind of got to look at the wider picture and say well what are the tenant type will they actually pay do they have like reliable um ongoing jobs that kind of thing so the numbers on on the paper aren't always correct coming from the analytical one yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think what you said there about like finding the demand and servicing it is very much what every tech startup does, right? It's what every business does. And someone else who does HMO said this on a podcast as well. It's like, you need to start with the customer. You wouldn't ever design a product and say, right, who wants to use this? You'd say, what do we, what do people want to use and then design it? But property seems to just be, well, we build it, they'll come. And yeah, for buy to let or, you know, pretty much always, yes, that will happen. But when you have something like HMOs that are different and that are for a different kind of person than potentially a buy to let or a single let, you know, you have to think, yeah, who is the tenant? Why would they live here? You know, what is their profile? What's their tenant profile? What experience do they want? Why do they want HMO? And it's like, and I think maybe that's the benefit of you both working and having jobs in businesses that work the kind of right way of doing things. So it's kind of a, a nice way of putting it. I mean, when it comes to the, the actual physical time split, was it a case of you're working five days a week, then you come home and analyze deals, and then Saturday you go to your area? Like, how did you physically balance the time? Yeah, that was it. At the beginning, it was Saturday, go getting up really early, going and doing the 22 viewings on some occasions, and then coming back on the train, crunching numbers, Sunday, preparing the offers, Monday, putting the offers in, um, and then going from there, really. Uh, it was a squeeze between, you know, any moments of time we could grab, lunch times before work, after work, you know, any pockets or windows we could do to call a letting agent or to call, you know. Yeah, it we was... had about 10 calls in an hour on my lunch break. I'm not even eating yet, so it's a bit of a struggle at times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there, there were occasions, I can't lie, you know, when we first started where I'd go and just book a meeting room and sit and just do an hour of property when I probably should have been having meetings. You know, these things do happen, but it is just, you know, time is your most precious commodity and just trying to carve out as much time in the day as you can to be efficient with the tasks that you need to get done urgently. Yeah, I've, I've definitely done that. I mean, I probably didn't even book a meeting room. I probably just so, <laughs> so audacious just walking around the, the common area just being like, yeah, so that property, like I just, I did not give a shit. Clearly. You clearly enjoy your, your jobs more than me because I didn't give a shit. <laughs> um, okay, so... A common, I guess there's there's two kind of approaches people take. One is what you do, which or done, which is work working full time and then doing property sort of part time or well probably felt like full time as well. Or the other approach is sort of you know stay in your job for a month, get like a rent to rent, get to get a serviced accommodation, bring some cash flow in, quit your job, and go ham and go all out in property. Looking back, do you wish you did that, or are you happy with the way you approach things? I personally would say no I'm happy with how we did it I think the tendency is if you quit your job and you kind of ready to go on property you may make some bad decisions in terms of securing deals oh actually I just want a deal I just want a deal I'll put in any you know and and there's there's less pressure when you know you've got that income coming and you've got the support I guess from a lending perspective as well you could say you may be slightly more favorable rent to rent obviously slightly different but um for us I think we just wanted to make sure that 
we grew our confidence, but also that the deal, the offers we were putting in were not because we were in, you know, real financial. Um, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of pressure to be able to be hitting our, our, our kind of cash flow goal and maybe over over offering. And I think, yeah, just having the security of a job, even though I'm a contractor, just to build up the pot a little bit more is helpful. Um, they kind of sometimes they sell the course on these courses, the dream. You should, they didn't always say you should quit your job and focus on it. And that's not maybe necessarily the right thing to do. Slow and steady wins the race sometimes. Yeah. I think at points we felt that we're being really slow, but actually, as Jules says, you know, property is is not a fast game. It's 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 that, you know, you're not it's not great get rich quick. It is a, something that is over the next kind of five to ten years, we'll probably see the results of the work we're putting in now. So um so yeah, for us it was was really staying in our job. Um and, and on that we... kind of that, that note of realism. How long has it taken you or did it take you to get to the point where in terms of incoming cash flow that you both could have quit your jobs? Probably earlier this year we, we could have done, but we have just bought um, a family home in London with a big mortgage. and maybe, maybe wouldn't have been the most sensible thing to do. Um, we've, we've actually only been in the property six weeks because we got locked in Cornwall for lockdown. We were there just before COVID happened. So, so we've bought, been away for three months. So we bought this amazing house and we couldn't even live in it, um, which was a bit mad. So we only came back to London on Saturday. So it's nice to be back and finally get some furniture as well. I was going to say, like buying a house, paying a mortgage and being like, oh, cool. Yeah, you can't even, can't even open the door. That's madness okay so but really you know started in you sort of courses finished end of 2018 we're talking about sort of less than two years for two people to quit their jobs like and you're not juniors in your jobs either you're fairly experienced so that's pretty good you know like when people want to oh, i want to do stuff quickly you did it pretty quickly um for two people so like I think it's going to, I hope this inspires people that, look, you can do it whilst you're working, as long as you put the right kind of systems and things in place. Now, you mentioned your local network. And of course, we've been to networking, we've met networking. Yeah. Has networking, has it helped? Has it has it been important, like, and physical and digital? Or, or has it just been a nice thing to do? Massively. I'm, I personally am having like networking withdrawal, like in real life. I'm really missing seeing like people in the, you know, that you do see. It's nice doing the webinars and it's nice doing catch ups online, but nothing beats actually going to those events and, and seeing people and we probably won't be able to shake their hands anymore. But, you know, it's, I'm really missing that. And it's really important, not just from a, catching up with the people you know and meeting new people but also you know seeing people you know talk who you think they've done it we can do it you know inspiring and learning from that perspective yeah but the property can be even though we're a couple can be a bit of a lonely industry sometimes so i think it's helpful even if you go to an event and you don't learn a huge amount you can still interact with people and they can potentially be a good contact later on down the line so i think it is very important yeah, absolutely. And when you first went networking, were you nervous about it or did you, because of your jobs, just kind of naturally just get on with it? Yeah. yeah we're honest, both very sociable, so I don't think it was a problem. Yeah, we can talk for... <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that your network has been priceless in your journey, in supporting your journey? Yeah, I, I think it, it has been. Um, it's certainly from, a, you know, being able to bounce ideas off people and, you know, whether it's, I don't know, cost saving tips on certain things or, or how you should go through a process or I think that that has been priceless. But from a from a confidence perspective as well, we're both part of independent WhatsApp groups and um, inv I'm involved in, in um, kind of 
crewing on one event in London. And, and really, it, yeah, they definitely have been priceless. The one thing we haven't really ever done, I guess, is gone to a networking event with an agenda, which I know some people say, I, I just think, you know, it's great to meet people and it's great to know what they want and what they're looking for and seeing how, if you can help them. But we don't ever go with the mind thinking, well, we're looking for a hundred grand for our next deal. And maybe that's all. Yeah. I, I've said probably for about two years, I need to go to non-property networking events to maybe on my own to pitch for it, maybe pitch for investment, but that day still not happened, but it will definitely come one day. <laughs> I think, you know what? It's, it's, so many of us say that I, I say the same thing and I was literally about to do it, had it planned out and then Corona happened. I was like, is this just never meant to happen? Should I just stick to property events forever? But <laughs> because you both have full-time jobs, it's kind of a, a, another benefit is you can go to networking events for your own sort of sectors and careers and it won't be weird that you're there, you know, like especially with like recruitment, rec you know, some recruiters, I'm sure they all think they do, but some recruiters make good money and what are they doing with it? probably yeah. buying stupid stuff like so you could be the people that they actually then make more money from and they learn how to invest with so for people in jobs like use like use your job as a tool to meet people and network outside of property because yes you can raise money at property events yes i think i have raised some not a lot but really you're kind of i don't know i think yes there are people with money in these rooms but i think a lot of the time like you said it's kind of you know not on agenda it's just meeting people it's getting out of the house it's hey if they give if they give free food then hey even better but you know i think it, most of the time it's just you know just getting out of the house doing something different meeting some people seeing how you can help and seeing what the the future could hold for both of you and it, it could be nothing you know like it, it could be nothing but it could be something so yeah yeah th that's super important going back to management so we touched briefly on your terrible property managers yeah from that can you tell me and the listeners what we should do differently when looking to get property managers for HMOs, I guess, in particular, but even in general, what should we look out for? What are some of the warning signs you look back at and think we should have seen that? I think, again, it's a bit like not following the crowd. If there's the main agent in the area, you think, oh, I should definitely use that agent. But that isn't, in my opinion, necessarily true. Um, you should meet them and sometimes go with your gut feeling I think we didn't do that with um the agent we used yeah yeah I, he, uh, Jules is absolutely right we went with one that was recommended to us and so lots of investors said oh he's really good he has he's expanded from this area and this area I think actually the infrastructure of the way he ran his business so he scaled way too quickly and he didn't have the right staff to support him so even though he could be this the salesperson and be able to say I've got experience in xyz he wasn't employing staff who he was upskilling in terms of the HMO management so I would say don't be afraid to go and look at people who maybe are private landlords and um, run you know manage or have a small manager for them and ask them if they take on some of your portfolio um, because we went with you know the recommended person and it didn't serve us well and I think we both knew when we met him we didn't love this guy and actually we probably should have looked and we asked the normal questions you know do you have your own properties how long have you managed HMOs what is your um, what's your process for evicting tenants? What do you do with the arrears? Blah blah blah. But actually, we probably should have gone with the kind of the local person. Yeah, who and I wasn't... think think now now we've changed things. We have more of an idea who, who the tenants are in our properties. Which... Before we didn't really know. We we had a few issues with kind of section eights, etc., and a few sleepless nights. So now we we just much prefer the process. We still have people managing them, but we're very hands on both in Essex and in Doncaster. And we can have open conversations if there are any issues with 
arrears or whatever, you can just kind of have a very open conversation about why that might be rather than having an agent in the way. It's not necessarily always scalable. So I think we will probably take as as our portfolio grows more of a hands off approach and and hire someone who is an in-house lettings person. But we're not at that stage at the moment. We just use the support of the the private landlords locally. Mm. Um, Yeah. I think that makes sense. I, I think with my properties for tenant finding, I manage it myself because by to let there's, there's like no management. Yeah. I use like, yeah, the one woman, one man bands. I use like it's really small companies, but who have strong histories, but also have a strong desire to get the job done. And if they know I'm buying X amount of properties and we have a very open discussion, they know that I just want to buy a property, refurb it and say, here we go, mate, just find a tenant. I don't even want to have to decide who to use. And when they're smart enough to realize, okay, this is a good contact, this is money, they will work harder for you than a big company will because they just don't, you know, they don't have that pressure necessarily. They may have more clients than you. So it's like, well, if these two leave us, then whatever, we've got 30 others. So sometimes using, I just prefer the underdog, but like I think using that, that other person is good. And your gut feeling, I think that's probably the most important thing you said there is that you didn't follow your gut because your gut was telling you something about this person and i think for people when you start out you're like how can i trust my gut when i'm not experienced and like my gut's not experienced in property so what the hell does you know what do we know this recommendation should be strong but actually they could be good at point x but when it comes to point y they totally fail so yeah and on that point of you self-managing and the kind of time it takes i mean how lot so how many hmos have you got now and how many hours a week do you think you spend on just looking after them in some shape or form so we have five in our portfolio at the moment with a couple in the pipeline um hours wise on essex really we spend no time at all um so we have our maintenance guys um, or management guys on the ground who go and go and check in once a week do the fire alarms check if there's any issues we have whatsapp groups with the tenants but it, they really, really easy. They love lovely. Yeah, I think it's, it's such a good dynamic there. They all work together. They they were putting plants in the garden the other day, and it's just a very nice atmosphere, a bit different to Doncaster. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so, sometimes we, we could go weeks and it's, everything's running really smoothly, which is obviously the dream for any property investor. Um, but overall, yeah, we spend a few hours a day, I would say. At the moment, we're spending a few hours a day. We've got a, a couple of rooms that we need to fill in Doncaster, and so that's taking a bit more of our time. But generally speaking once they're set up and we've got the people on the ground then we don't really get much and we, we've actually learned like well in my my view what do letting agents actually do the the whole kind of paperwork <laughs> nothing. Which, yeah. nothing yeah exactly <laughs> the in terms of kind of setting up deposits and giving them all the right documents it's, it was good for us to learn as well um so yeah it's, it's been a very good learning curve and kind of the realization of they don't do too much <laughs> Yeah, I think it's nice to have them for tenant find because they can kind of, especially if you if you invest in an area that's very community focused, I find that some local letting agents know like, oh, that's the local ruffian. He sleeps in the bins because he gets drunk every Friday night and he goes home and he kicks his door. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. And you're like, cool, cool, cool. Well, they're not, they're not living here. There. So it's interesting. And it's depending on where you invest to have that kind of local knowledge, especially if you're far away. Do you want to have to get there to serve documents? And, and especially because tenancy law is so old and outdated and, you know, technology is only just kind of... So, yeah, I definitely see what they do. But on a monthly thing, yeah, like especially in buy-to-let, single-lets, there's just no management. Like there's just yeah. none. And yeah. For you to say that you have minimal management during a HMO is unusual, which 
I think people are going to be quite like quite happy to hear because obviously there's more management than a buy to let, which is what you're saying. But you know, a couple of hours a day to manage this, and yeah, say if you had ten, double the amount it's probably not enough to warrant people complaining. You know what I mean? It's probably not enough work that you'd say, oh God, I hate this. And so people know, Essex um, and investing in the North, how much cash flow per property per month from a HMO would you expect in Doncaster and how much would you expect in Essex? To be fair, if, if the, all the rooms are fully filled, the, the cash flow is reasonably similar. Um, it would be slightly more um, in Essex, but we... The last two deals we've done are purely through um, angels. So we were paying back the interest as well. If it wasn't for that, then the cash flow would be 1500 It'd be extremely good. But overall, once they're both um, fully filled, it's around 1200 for for both Doncaster and for Essex. Mm, that's interesting because obviously, the therefore, the yield, as we said right at the beginning in Essex, is so small compared to Doncaster. And it's just... I think this just highlights to people, you know, like you said before, Lucy, what are your goals? Like, you know, do you want to invest here and but deal with that yield? Yeah. Or do you want to invest up there and deal with that yield? So I think it's really important people think about that because you're doing both and it works and you're accepting you have to leave in more money, which I don't think you have a choice of, right? Like if you, I mean, do you have deals in Essex that you could pull out, I don't know, 90% of the money you put in? Not not at the moment. We When we first went there, we were mainly kind of looking for commuters, but then once Lucy came across um, the NHS contact, we thought it was great. And um, we've seen other people do it where they leave more money in and do smaller refurbs. And we really like that model. Um, we are leaving a lot more money in, but we expect there will, will be capital growth. Obviously, there's a few issues at the moment with the virus, <laughs> etc. Um, not trying to ignore that, but I think going forward is still very sound investment it's also looking at the bigger picture as well because you could say okay well fine you will you get the same similar cash flow after i mean still without the angels which we will have paid off in two years that's still 1600 pounds net cash flow for a property is, is brilliant um but i think um it's looking at the whole picture which is that where the tenant bit comes into play and the fact that we we get the tenants we get a list of tenants who are coming in they fly in to the uk they come to our house the house is ready you know we then don't hear from them from monday to friday and, and they're, the, they're the respectful NH they trust trade our houses absolutely immaculately and then i guess in, in on the other side we have tenants who don't always pay um don't always have job security we don't always know where they you know doing from one week to the other and it, and they don't always leave your house in the best condition we've had some really horror stories so for us as the whole picture Essex just really worked for us and it is it's an independent you know your personal circumstances and so. the, the NHS always pay three months up front yeah. um to help, help and, the and tenants because well. it can obviously be slightly overwhelming we've had people from come from all around the world but to help them and obviously to help us, that's a great setup initially. Yeah. Wow. That is, I mean, that's pretty nice. I mean, I don't think anyone would complain about three months rent up front and the deposit. That's that's good for everyone. Wow. Okay. Um, this brings us to the quickfire round. What <laughs> are the biggest three mistakes you've made in property? I think the one we mentioned earlier is to not follow your gut. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I think um, looking for perfection, I think we spent a lot of time and I've heard this on other um, interviews you've had on the podcast is maybe part of our education and looking for the dream money in money out deals. They sure they existed, you know, or they're sure they still exist. Tej, I know you've done some fabulous deals, but um, just getting going, like taking action and not just waiting for perfection to happen, because 
property is quite a forgiving property is quite forgiving and um you know even if it, you don't get as much money out then it's still the best asset class the strongest asset class in terms of performance so ultimately i'm sure they that property will, will stand you good stead in the long term yeah because i think some people pay thousands of pounds for training courses look for properties for years and they never actually buy one so even if your first deal isn't the, the greatest roi ever at least you kind of you're involved you're learning and you're growing all the time so i think just get out there and yeah and buy basically what was your first one don't go with your gut yeah yeah and and um i would say yeah i guess if you're working in partnership like us whether it be your other half or a friend or whatever it is just being really clear and transparent from the beginning about your roles and responsibilities um and playing to your natural strengths love it and what are three goals for the future this could be personal business health fitness anything well, I, I'm, I would like my own golf course at some point. <laughs> I, I think that's a bit ambitious, but I think in the next few years, it'd be great to have um, a property overseas, maybe a villa in, there's a lot of part of Portugal uh, near Lisbon that we love, so maybe near there. Yeah, mine is um, is actually charity related. So um, my mum runs an educational charity building schools in Africa, which my grandmother started. They built 11 today. I would love to build one over there and to, um, to raise some money to, to build one and kind of, give back in terms of education um and then our last one is probably just to do I, i've always wanted to do a, a big pub conversion so it is property related but yeah so this brings us to the end of the podcast thank you both so much for coming on if people want to talk to you uh, you know invest with you just learn more about you how should they get hold of you yeah, so we are on Instagram, although we're not as active as I know we should be, Tej. Mm -hmm, yes. yeah, tell, yeah, um, so we're at DBV Property, so that's De Beauvoir Properties, um, and you can you can send us a message on there. Otherwise, we're also on Facebook. I'm Lucy Warwick, and Jules is Julian Ricketts, um, so just get in touch. Amazing. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tej. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.